Welcome to Listening with Leaders. I'm Doug Noel, lawyer turned peacemaker. I teach executive leaders how to listen to emotions rather than words so that they can become the leaders everyone wants to follow. And I teach those same leaders how to be authentically present, available, and connected to their families, despite being insanely busy. I have learned that we are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. Learning how to listen to emotions is, in my experience, the foundational skill of life. Stick around to the end of the show, and I'll reveal how you can be on our next guest in 15 to 20 minutes. So let's get started. Mark Twitty, welcome to Listen With Leaders. You are the president of Twitty & Company, which is a, a big real estate firm in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. We're going to talk about that. And you can be found at twitty.com. Welcome to the show. Doug, thank you for having me. It's a treat to be here. Tell us a little bit about your backstory, Mark. So I grew up on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. That's the far eastern barrier island community of North Carolina. Grew up here and had a wonderful childhood. And when it came time to go to college, I had always watched military movies. Top Gun came out in 1986 when I was 10 years old. And I saw it in our local movie theater. And like so many folks, I looked at that and said, that's what I want to do. So I went to the Virginia Military Institute and then joined the Navy and was in the Navy for almost 10 years and got a chance to see the world. The Navy often promises, join the Navy, see the world. They were true to their word. Uh, (laughs) And that was an honor and a privilege. And then had the opportunity to go to grad school. As a result of that, the GI Bill is a wonderful thing. Had a congressional scholarship to go to a grad school and then was able to continue that in some other places. But most importantly, I had a chance to come back and work with my best friend, who is my brother, in what is now a second generation family business in the vacation business in a famous place. So my wife and two little girls love it here. And I love what we get to do every day. So tell us about your company, Twitty and Company. Twitty and Company is in the vacation business. So broadly speaking to your listeners, the vacation business today is synonymous with something called Airbnb. Airbnb isn't that old of a company. In fact, The vacation industry goes back much further than that. So we have been renting homes on behalf of private homeowners to the vacationing public now for 45 years. The business comparison is we have a platform, Twitty and Company, and then we have assets that are the homes of private homeowners. And then we have, in a sense, investors. And those are guests who are willing to take a partial interest in a home for a period of time. And when those three ecosystems are working, it is a wonderful place to be. And of course, our favorite thing to talk about are our customers, our homeowners, and then our own staff experience. Because as you know, the magic of the company is the people who bring it to life. Absolutely correct. What is it that gets you excited every morning to get up and go to work? If you love people and you love their stories, Robert Caro, the great writer, had a great quote that said, if you ask the right questions, there's always more to the story. And if you love people and you love their journeys, this is a wonderful business because you see people across their journey in life, whether it's homeowners, as they invest in a home and then use that home to fund, for example, kids going to college, whether you get to see guests come back year after year and raise their children, And in some cases, now we see three generations walking up the front steps. And then we hope to be a great place to work in our own local community and see our folks in our own local community send their kids to school and prosper, hopefully. If you like 
people's journeys in a beautiful place, it never gets old. I bet. Is it is is the business seasonal or are you able to have people come all year round to the Outer Banks? When we talk about seasonality, that's a great question. Seasonally, the Outer Banks is most famous during the summer months. So, for example, the summertime, kids are out of school. That's when we are the most occupied. Interestingly, as folks think about booking a vacation, the Outer Banks is fairly unique in that our average reservation, the time someone books in advance, is up to nine months or even a year. So wow. we're very busy booking reservations in January and February, and then we pivot to occupancy. So said differently, we try to get people to come to the Outer Banks, and we do that in the wintertime. And then when they arrive in the summer, you we think? try to create such a great experience. They come back year after year. Wow. I can't help myself. How is climate change and hurricanes affecting your business? You know, what a great question that is. And I'm not a scientist and I don't know all the science around global warming, but I've lived on the water for 47 years now. There is more water than there used to be. And the storms we get are more frequent and of a greater intensity. And the problem we have as a community is we are trained in the business world and even in our very humanity to have a pretty tight relationship to cause and effect. We like Twitter, we like Twitter and we like email and we like texting because it's fast. As we prepare for climate change, it's a very long cause and effect. So long story short, we have to advocate on behalf of the future. So we do that through things like op-eds. We do that by different things about writing books, for example. We've written several books about how the place has changed. And when we talk about change, we place it in context. And I hope when we do that, we also place a future generation in context and try to shape that future for them. Long story short, there is more water and there are more storms, which essentially translates to greater risk and in turn a greater responsibility. Right. I think we're seeing it everywhere. I live in the central Sierra Nevada of California south of Yosemite National Park. Yep. And two years ago, we had the largest wildfire in California history wipe out over a third of the Sierra National Forest. I saw that. Uh, and I, li I, was, I was ground zero. Oh, we were, wow. We were living off a generator for 14 days. We were on, we were below the fire line, but if the wind shifted, we'd, we, <laughs> we'd be in the path. Uh, wow. It was, and we have people living on our property. I've got 10 acres. We have people living, on, lived on our, came down out of the high country and, and stayed with us for, for the duration of the fire. It was a mess. It, it, uh, yeah, it's, it's serious. It's real. Yep. And it's affecting everyday people. State Farm just said it was pulling out all homeowners insurance in California today. I read that. And I saw I'm, that. And, and you're not alone. I think everybody is taking a look to our earlier comment right. as it gets more and more risky and the, to make people whole costs more and more money. That's right. something, and that's not just a private sector issue. That's going to bleed over into the public sector, to the nonprofit sector. So it will take a collaborative approach at the federal, state, and local level to really manage this. It's, it's yeah, it's it's one of the first indicators of the huge commercial cost of environmental change that we all. Amen. Get. So, well said. So Amen. you you run a family business. Uh, I, as as we said before the show, as a lawyer turned peacemaker, I have done a lot of work with family businesses. Uh, uh, in conflict, of all, and I've done just about everything you can imagine. I'm just wondering how, what sort of separate skills does it take as the leader of a second generation family business between you and your brother to manage all of the dynamics, which are much more complex than a, than a typical company, in my opinion. 
Well, that's a, another great question. And I appreciate you bringing it up, having done some research on you and, and thought about that, whether it's in our commercial business, our customer facing business, or the family dynamic, the two most important words in our business, number one is trust and how we build it. And number two is listen. And if we listen well, the good news is listening well, as you probably point out, builds yeah. trust rapidly. And there's a good news story out there, family businesses. It turns out each one is different, but they are all sharing a great deal in common. So as you know, family businesses typically go from an entrepreneur. Right. Entrepreneur is a French word. It means to build something from nothing. And then you go into what's called a sibling partnership. And right. then you go into a third generation and what's called a cousin collaboration. And the odds against a business going from a first generation to a third generation are remote. Yes. So to answer your question, as we think about future predictions, we say it's less of a prediction and more about planning and probabilities and preparation. Jim Baker, the famous Jim Baker, always said prior planning prevents poor performance. Right. So we work a lot on trust. And the thing we work on more than any other in the family business is self-awareness self-reflection and our ability to actively listen to others. That's great. And do you and have core competency? Do you have a do you have like a, a family format where you come together as the family members involved in the business or even those that aren't in the business and have family meetings to talk about what's going on and talk about these these issues as, as they arise? We do indeed. And we have explored a different a range of different options to include a professional mediator, mm -hmm. which sounds silly on the surface. Most well, folks don't like that idea. But once you've been in it for a while, there's great value there. And we will look at the company not as operators of the companies, but from an ownership perspective. And then we try to think long term. So we do indeed have a format for that. And it's a very different conversation than we would have, for example, in an operational capacity within the business. That's right. And and uh, I'm curious, are you, are you going to go to the third generation of cousins, cousin collaboration? Well, as we think about the future and we think about planning and probabilities, the answer is that the horizon is already painted for us. So I'm 47 and I have two daughters. One is seven and one is three. Okay. okay. The future of our company is, we believe, still private family ownership, but non-family professional leadership and management in the future. So we will transition from working in the business to probably being owners of a business, which is a very different responsibility. Right. And then you even get into expecting your children to even step into that. I want my little girls to make their own decisions in life and be right. successful no matter where they go. Right. So now we spend a lot of time thinking about the transition from family leadership to professional non-family leadership. And we think that will be an important inflection point in the history of the company. And it's not that far away relatively. It'll, it'll go faster than you can possibly imagine. Absolutely. So 10 years from now, if I'm lucky, I'll be 57. Right. We hope by that time when I'm 57, we hope to have a plan, a team and a trajectory well in place. At some point, the challenge becomes to maintain a big vision, hire great people. And then the hardest part is to simply get out of their way. That's right. So when you think when you think about the business that, that you're operating right now, what are some of the what are some of the daily problems that you have to deal with uh, that perhaps other, other CEOs or presidents probably wouldn't see because of the nature of what you do. We are a classic platform interchange. We bring two markets together. So in that sense, we have to keep an eye out on who our audience is, 
our fiduciary responsibility, one that we're very proud of, is our homeowners. Mm-hmm. Our homeowner community, we have a responsibility to act in their best interest. And to our guests, we owe a great experience. I'll give you a very current example. In the vacation business, and you see it all over America, there is a trend to have parties right around the time where high school graduations work. So just recently, we have managed to uh, persuade some of a a high school group that was coming on vacation to depart uh, a collection of homes they had rented. And the social media reaction to that is about 300 or 400 18s and 19-year-olds who are letting their opinions be known about as a company. (laughs) And that's tough to do. We've done the right thing. We listen with empathy. We didn't handle everything in the best possible way. We did the right thing, perhaps in the wrong way. But that kind of to be able to sustain doing the right thing and then taking a beating for it is something that happens with some kind of regularity in the property management business, because so much of the business itself is focused on execution in the day. Right. And and so that in that circumstance, you're protecting the interest of your homeowners. Absolutely. Not, do not want to see their homes torn up by partiers. Yep. And, uh, you know, when, when kids get out of control, they've got to be reined in. They've and got to be reined in. The problem becomes that there are always fewer homeowners than there are vacationing public. So you can be very loyal and rightfully so to your assets, your homeowner community, but there are a very small number of them relative to the general public. So when you get clobbered in social media, for example, that's a tough thing to do because as you and I will talk about, your real audience in social media, for example, isn't just the other party. It's everyone who's reading and judging how you respond. That's right. So it becomes a very tight rope to walk in terms of how to engage multiple audiences at the same time and come out on the other side with everyone happy. Abraham Lincoln said, you'll never make everybody happy all the time. And yet in business, we certainly try to. So how do you manage a social media crisis like that? Well, we go back to even probably the nature of our conversation. It's number one, by maintaining trust and credibility. And number two, it's by listening with empathy. And then number three, if we're honest, there's some vulnerability there. We don't always know if what we're doing is the right thing. We don't always know if we have done everything as well as we could have. We have learned over time that the best way to build trust rapidly is to demonstrate vulnerability. So we'll do a combination of those three things. We'll try to maintain credibility, which is fairness and responsive. We'll try to listen with empathy. And then number three, we'll be candid about vulnerability. And we hope in return that vulnerability once accepted in the minds of the public, may be returned. It's so interesting that you should talk about vulnerability. I, 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 I posted on LinkedIn today, the paradoxes of the Tai Chi leadership. And I said that in Tai Chi, there's a, the, the paradox is the softer you are, the stronger you are. The more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. Soft to be strong, vulnerable to be powerful. Yep. And what does this mean in leadership? The I'll, I'll leave you a quick story. Um, the single strongest trust building action I've ever taken in my life outside of the military, but that's a different dynamic in business was in the pandemic. We had a, a, an instance in the pandemic where we simply didn't know if anyone was going to come on vacation. And that's a, obviously an existential problem financially in terms of the balance sheet, income statement, but also the future of your business. So we had a town hall with our homeowners, and we sent everyone an invitation. 
And we didn't know how many would attend. And usually when we do that, it's about 10 to 15%. And it's that classic moment, the camera goes live and you're looking at how many attendees are there. And in about 15 seconds, it went up to 800. So 80% of our clients live on one call. And we sat there and looked into the camera and said, we don't know. We're not sure what's going to happen next. And we said, here's what we know. Here's what we don't. Here's what we think. And here's what we're going to do over the next 48 hours. And after that call, I, we got off the phone and said, well, that was an unmitigated disaster. And I have never gotten that many emails from homeowners at one time. And they overwhelmingly said, thank you for being honest with us. We don't know either. And that's what we were looking to see if you would be honest or if you would try to spin it. So that vulnerability in that moment was an incredibly powerful way to build trust in a chaotic environment. How, how, did, how did you guys get through the pandemic? Well, it's a tale of two cities. At first, we thought, honestly, we may go out of business because we were not sure what the vacationing public would do. And from a cash flow perspective, that becomes problematic. We use the analogy of landing an airplane on a runway. And my joke is we're looking out the cockpit, looking at the end of the runway, wondering how hard we can step on the brakes. Exactly. (laughs) And then it turns out that the American public uh, overwhelmingly preferred vacation rentals during the pandemic. So we went from wondering if we were going to be in business to, oh my gosh, how do we maintain any kind of quality given the unprecedented demand that we saw? So in that sense, we were very fortunate. So we did good on the second half. In the first half, we were worried. We probably didn't score any points in the first half. And you can imagine that halftime conversation. I imagine. But it makes perfect sense because people are all, they're, you know, closed in. Then their are homes, apartments, they can't get out. But you can go to a vacation home. You've got these beautiful beaches, wide open. Exactly very right. And so it's people can get outside. With kitchens. That's right. And that's really when you saw a lot of things like Airbnb and vacation rentals burst into the mainstream for 40 years. They had been a fairly niche alternative accommodation. That's no longer true. Uh, tourism in North Carolina alone is a $33 billion business, Jeez. which is up about 20% from only a few years ago. North Carolina is the sixth most visited state in America. Where do, you, where do your, where do your uh, visitors come from? It's interesting you bring that up. Most of our visitors are mid-Atlantic, D.C. Metro up to Philadelphia. Our two biggest states, if we measure it by states, clearly are Virginia and Pennsylvania. We generally say the mid-Atlantic. So even though we are a business focused and located on the Outer Banks, our market is the mid-Atlantic. And we are 60% of the population of the United States is about a day's drive from the Outer Banks. So in terms of a market, it reaches out to the Mississippi. Wow. Huh. I mean, I never really thought about that. That's uh, that that's impressive. So you're actually, as long as you can deal with Mother Nature, you're ideally situated to draw in. As long, if two things are true, we believe the business will be viable looking into the future. Number one, we are a great place to be as long as the Outer Banks is a sterling natural environment. Going back to your climate change conversation, and number two, as long as demographics around the Outer Banks, and I say around broadly regionally in the United States, continue to grow and there is more interest and more demand in an Outer Banks experience, we think given the environment and demographics, the business, if managed well, primarily as a great place to work, will be resilient into the next generation. 
What what draws people to the Outer Banks? I mean, I hear it's beautiful, but I'm having never been there. You nailed it. It's a beautiful place. It's incredibly family friendly. It is very much still have a small town feel. We don't have, for example, any high rises. We don't have any interstates. We still have a collection of roads and villages that were very much in place 30 and 40 years ago. We have more homes and we have more grocery stores, but it's still very much a small beach town in a beautiful natural environment. You're not going to find big, huge shopping malls and stuff like that. No, to to the credit of folks who are no longer with us, as they thought about the Outer Banks many years ago, they deliberately thought about Virginia Beach to our north mm-hmm. and Myrtle Beach to our south. And the Outer Banks grew in a very different way from those two communities, primarily as a function of access, still very remote. Transportation networks didn't come until much later. And then nothing else. So, for example, Virginia Beach has the military. Right. And lots of other industry, Myrtle Beach, not dissimilar, closer to big population centers. The Outer Banks grew distinctly differently than those destinations and retains that flavor to this day. And that's what attracts people to it. I Absolutely. I think it's a great place. There's water all around. It's easy to spend time with a family. You can move all around, very low stress. Uh, I think it's a great place to come relax with a family. And I, if I had to summarize it in one sentence, that's it. What's the what's the the real estate market like there? Real estate is cyclical, so it depends on who you ask and when. But broadly <laughs> speaking, over time, the Outer Banks has been a good real estate investment. As you know, there are cycles to real estate investments, but broadly speaking, the Outer Banks continues to be a popular place to invest. And we know that anecdotally by talking to folks, but statistically, more than fifty percent over half of the homeowners and where I am now, Dare County, which is where the Wright brothers took off, do not live in North Carolina. So more than half of the homes in our region are purpose built to be vacation rentals by investors who live outside the state. So from that perspective, it has been a very popular investment destination. Wow. What is it that what is it that's so unique about there's something about you. There's something really unique about you that you're bringing to all of this. Um, What is it? Well, I think, uh, number one, I'm fortunate to work with a lot of really smart people who allow me to go do things like this. And I'll tell you two political stories. Uh, So I ran for office one time and it was incredibly educational. And three people voted for me and that was an education (laughs) in and of itself. And one person in the front row one time, and I said, I want to be humble in this. And the front row person said, good, you've got a lot to be humble about. And I never forgot that. And that's a nice way of saying I've got a lot to be humble about, but I don't take myself too seriously. And we try to have fun along the way. And I think Eisenhower said, take the position seriously, but never yourself. Right. And that's always resonated with me a little bit. So if we can't have fun along the way, you know, let, let's take the position, but not ourselves. Well, I think that I think you nail it. I mean, I'm talking to you, Clark, as a man who's not consumed by ego who really loves what he does, loves his family, loves where he lives, loves the people that he works with. And that's what drives him and makes life makes that's your, that's your meaning in life. That's your why in life. There was um, some people say, is there a quote that resonates more than any other? And at one time I watched uh, at that time, general Mattis, who went on to be the secretary of defense. 
and he was giving a graduation commencement. And someone said, boil this down to me in one sentence. And I'll never forget this. He said, serve others first. That's right. And I think if there is a, if there's nobility in our business, and I believe there is, it's through service to others first. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. And at the end of the day, if that's what we've done, we've got a great business. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I did not, I left the practice of law after 22 years because, and I was a very successful trial lawyer, but I did it because I didn't feel like I was serving people. And that drove uh-huh. me to go back to school and get my master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies. I left $10 million on the table, walked out with a week's notice and started my own my own practice. And what I have learned since then is happiness is all about serving others. Which I, I could not great. agree more. And I think there, there's a, I love that peacemaking piece. There's that great quote, blessed are the peacemakers. Right. And when you right. said, I'm a peacemaker, what better, don't we need a lot more of those? Well, and we can all be peacemakers. It's not just it's just not people with a high education like me. It's skill set and mindset. But yeah, yeah, my work takes me from maximum security prisons where I train murderers to be peacemakers yeah. in California all the way to the Congressional Budget Office where I've trained senior analysts how to de-escalate members of Congress. That was interesting. <laughs> I, I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But when I watched your videos and heard that, I, that, that was compelling. So yeah. such a treat to be here. Pretty amazing. All right. One last question. Then I'll let you go. Please. Um, what is the one thing about Clark Twitty that we wouldn't know unless you revealed it to us? Well, the best things about me are my wife and two little girls. The one thing about me that you may not know, um, I very much believe in planning for second and third acts in life. So I'm an aspiring guitar player. Uh, so I've got a, a collection of guitars just off camera and a, a collection of antique books. Wow. I hope I hope one day I know Alexander built a, the great library of Alexandria. Right. So in Eastern North Carolina, I want to build a great library too. So one day you'll hear more about that. I hope. For you. Well, you'll be pleased to know that I'm a jazz violinist. Ah, yes. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. There we have it. So maybe a yeah. second or third act. There you go. That's a combination right. of that. Clark, thanks a lot. It's been a lot of fun talking to you. Doug, thank you. The pleasure's all mine. You're welcome. Doug Knoll here. Thank you so much for listening to Listening with Leaders. If you are a successful executive leader who would like to be on this program, please visit podcast.dougnoll.com slash podcast. If you got something out of this interview, would you please share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on the social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag listeningwithleaders. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to my website, dougnoll.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. That's at Douglas E. Noel. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next show.